The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 8 and 9 this morning. Finally, brothers. So he's gone through this three chapters of detailing the important things of Christianity of having the mind of Christ, to allowing the Spirit to lead, to making Him first for unity amongst brothers in all that we do. And after all that, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think About these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, as I said, these verses are a statement of God's rules for doubtful things. They introduce us to the problem of regulating our conduct in areas of life where the Bible isn't entirely explicit. Some of the areas have been a controversy for generations, and many have been the catalysts of making lists of things that Christians should and should not do. Should Christians be involved in politics? Things like drinking. Should Christians drink alcohol? Should Christians go to movies? How should Christians dress? And depending on how you were brought up in the church, if you've been saved for many of years, you know that these areas bring a real wide and varied focus amongst many Christians. The answer to such questions must be given in their broadest possible scope. So we will look at several passages and then return back to Philippians. But let's begin by looking, first of all, at grasping the standards. We need to recognize first that although many of the issues that trouble Christians today are really insignificant and we shouldn't even waste time looking at them, there are many that do demand our attention. Many have been ingrained in us through years of training and we find, out, find ourselves sometimes asking, why do I believe that? Why do I see it that way? So before we get going, I want to just go back to those first two verses again. And let's just look at them one more time. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What is the number one thing, if you were to just name one truth that comes up over and over again through our study in Philippians, can anybody tell me what it was? Go ahead. The mind of Christ. Remember? We are to have the mind of Christ which means we are totally surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on through that whole instruction, and that's been fed all through the study that we've done. 
Elizabeth Elliot has wrote on one of the key problems of our time in a book called The Liberty of Obedience, which was based on personal experience. She says, quote, she had always had the idea, perhaps as the product of her Christian upbringing, that there was a certain type of clothing that was right for Christians to wear. Conversely, there was clothing that was wrong. And then she went to Ecuador and found herself in the midst of a tropical people who wore very little. What did her standards have to do with them, she asked. Should she dress converts the way she thought they should be dressed? Should their standard prevail? She said the problem became even more complex when she realized in time that that the women were conscious of proper ways to walk, sit, and stand that they thought modest. The entire problem forced her to ask herself if there is anything inherently Christian or non-Christian in the way we dress, end of quote. On my years of business traveling around with other Christians going to trade shows and having dinners with clients, it was often practiced to abstain from any alcohol because you didn't want to damage your Christian testimony. And then one commentator wrote about going and visiting a very strict fundamental church in France and finding one of the elders putting wine in the children's water on a, on a uh, picnic to prevent bacteria from rural water. And what do we do about the fact that Jesus turned water to wine at the wedding of Canaan? So comparisons such as this really defeat any, any approach to the problem through legalism. Comparisons throws the student of God back on the Scriptures to see what the Scriptures say to guide us in these principles. So what I want to do this morning is I want to offer you three principles that should govern and guide our conduct in some of these areas that are difficult to see. And in so doing, I'm going to give you several passages, and what I want to do right at the beginning is give you the passages so you can write them down, and then we'll hit them as we go through these points. The first one is Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians 6.12. Although things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then a sister verse to 1 Corinthians 6 is 1 Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then, of course, we come back to our passage in Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So if I was going to stop right now and summarize the message before we go any farther, I would say that these passages tell us that we are to live by grace, that we are to think first, last, and always of others, and that we are to always pursue the highest things. So let's begin by looking at not law, but grace. And as I read the first verse, the first principle here, Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
This verse teaches that whenever the answer, whatever the answer might be to the problem of doubtful practices, it's definitely not legalism. That is, the way will never be found by organizing bodies of Christians to declare questionable things proper or improper. What happens when you create lists of what Christians should and should not do? Well, the list becomes the barometer of holiness. Our life now is dictated, our holiness is dictated about what we do and don't do instead of how the Holy Spirit leads you. And our mind becomes off the leading of the Spirit and on man-made lists. And this has been a problem for centuries in the Christian church. But what happens when you get this way? Kids are raised this way, uh, and they grow up learning, assuming the character of God. And then they look at these things, and they look at their lists, and they don't do this, they don't do this, they do this, they do this, and then you let something bad happen to them. They didn't do this, God. I didn't go to those movies. I didn't drink anything. I didn't do this. I did this. I did this. You owe me. And we are taught to put God in our debt by keeping human lists. But you can't put God in your debt because wonderful people in the scriptures had things go very badly for them. So that creates a problem. Historically, this problem was found to be uh, very destructive in the church down through the ages. We must remember that because of the wide dispersion of Jews in the, in the early centuries before Christ, that they were all through the known world. And after the church came and after Christ came and the churches began to form, many of the churches were full of as many Jews as they were Gentiles, even in the most Gentile portions of, of the area. And so the Jews took it upon themselves to say, but you know, the Gentiles need to practice as we practice. They should be upholding the things that we do. And this became a major battle. In fact, Paul fought ferociously against this whole thing, even standing to the face of Peter, who was taken in on this. And, and in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, we read, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So this was a real problem that was taking place. Fortunately, Peter understood and, and grasped the reality of what Paul was saying. And in Acts 15, verses 10 through 11, we find Peter saying, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So in the early church, the battle against legalism was won for pure grace. Now, however, it is also true that the same verse that speaks against legalism also speaks against another error that was popular, and that was the error of license. 
the teaching that because we are not under law but under grace, Christians can just keep doing whatever they want to do. And this scripturally doesn't make sense either. Uh, the teaching would be twisted and, and cause people to live in a way that was not honoring to God. So this error pretends to be logical, but it wasn't. And Paul does not hesitate to say that this is going to be a problem because, as he said in Romans, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? But then in Romans 16, 15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. And then he goes on in Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul's argument is that life by grace actually leads to holiness. And hence, we should not fear to abolish legalism as the answer to the problem of Christian conduct. So as you begin to follow through all of Paul's teachings about having the mind of Christ, about allowing the Spirit, as you deal with these things, they begin to fall into place. Now this brings us to our next key point, and that is that all things are not expedient. The second principle for determining God's will in doubtful things is that all things are lawful for the Christian, because he's not under law but under grace, but all things are not necessarily expedient. That is, they're not necessarily in your best interest. There's two reasons for this. First, because the thing itself may gain a harmful control over him and have a harmful effect on his body. And secondly, because through him it may hurt other Christians. We find this brought out in our 1 Corinthians 6.12 passage. He says... All things are lawful for me. All things. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So Paul knew that God had not set him free from sin and the law in order for him to become captive to mere things. So the guiding principle, as we begin to see here, is that whether you as a Christian are using things or things are using you. Take food, for example. Nothing could be so good as food. It's good for the body. It's good for the mind. But when it's abused over and over again, it can work exactly the opposite to the benefit and can really endanger your life. And what about this whole area of wine in the Bible? I, I love to read different commentators and all the different viewpoints. It's, it's, it's exciting to see how many different viewpoints, and you wonder how they got that or where did they get this from. But I find it interesting that in one of the psalmists, that where the psalmist is writing about all the great things that God has given him, from food to animals to air, to sky, the sun, and everything else. In Psalm 104.15, he comes down and he says, and, and wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen a man's heart. 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink any daily water, but use a little wine for the sake of the stomach and for frequent ailments. So wine is suggested as a medicinal thing. And then even regards to the qualifications of deacons. 1 Timothy 3.8, 
Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You notice the moderation here. And then I think Ephesians 5.18 pulls it together. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So all the teachings for Paul as he brings this through, we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to be ruled by the leading of the Spirit. Too much wine makes you ruled by the wine and not the Spirit. And so the Scripture is very clear against that. Moderation is the key. Moderation is what they're, they're talking about here. So we find this to be a very key thing, but as we go on through Scripture, it'll start to pull this together. The second example that's used by Paul is sex. This is good too. It's, it's a gift from God with the bonds of marriage. It is a force for strength in the home, for intimacy, for fellowship, but it can also be destructive. It can control a person rather than a person controlling it. And in this form, sex can destroy the very thing God gave it as a blessing for us. And Paul comes down very hard on this in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 20. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral, immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the Bible teaches very clearly that the Christian must never use things, food, sex, alcohol, money, or whatever it is, in such a way that he or she actually falls under their power. So like so many things in Scripture, it's not the thing. It's the abuse of it or the overindulgence of it that's the problem. Remember, it's the mind of Christ we are to pursue with all our heart. And it is the mind of Christ that will always lead to proper conduct. When Christ is ruling, the conduct is right. So if the mind of Christ is inhibited, then our actions will be inhibited as well. The companion verse in 1 Corinthians uh, is 1 Corinthians uh, 10:23. All things are lawful but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The verse that follows show that he is thinking of the edification of others around us. He's building the argument that as we have liberty, how we conduct ourselves around others who may be weak could be a problem as well. 
So we see that while things aren't bad in themselves, if they gain control over you, they become bad. And in the same way, if someone around you struggles in a certain area, you avoid flaunting your liberty in front of them. I remember years ago when I was at BBC, there was a wonderful story of a young man who was gloriously saved out of the inner cities in Scranton area. And um, he was saved out of a life of drugs and alcohol and gambling. He was addicted to gambling and he used to spend half his days and nights in pool halls gambling. Well, he was gloriously saved and in time he came to BBC for an education. And when he first walked into the student section, student union, and saw the pool tables, he was horrified. Because to him, they were a tool of the devil. Well, to everyone else who understands liberty, they know that that's not the tool, it's what you do with it. But this young Christian, in his weakness, had to grow and learn past that. And it always reminded me that sometimes you and I are around people whose liberty is not as free as us and who might be struggling with certain areas. And the scriptures are clear that we need to have a sensitive heart not to do anything around them that could cause them to stumble. Because all things are lawful, and they may be lawful for you, but they don't always help, and they don't always build up. Remember our emphasis last week about unity? It was having the mind of Christ in order to be completely tuned to the Savior, And in so being tuned to the Savior, we were tuned to each other, just like those hundred pianos I talked about. Always looking to diffuse conflicts and build up each other. So a key principle here then is, when you put Christ first, others come first automatically. That's a given with Scripture. When you put Christ first, others automatically come first. And you have a sensitive heart a heart of forgiveness, a heart of mercy, a heart that is not easily provoked, but one that wants to be in tune with the Lord and in so be in tune with each other. Now, I do not think this verse means that you have to take your standards of conduct entirely from what other Christians say or think. I mean, if you go that route, you're going to be eventually become hypocritical or schizophrenic or mad because you'll never keep up with everybody's personal standards. But right here, in fact, within this church, there are varying views on different things. But again, the child of God whose heart is full of Christ, they recognize and put him first in all situations. So the verse does not mean that you are to allow the prejudice and viewpoints of others to dictate your pattern of behavior. But it does mean something significant. It says there are situations in which we must avoid certain things, even if they are right in themselves, lest they be detrimental to others. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.23 once more. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are build up. So this also means that we must be consistent. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What? Never again? 
And this is from the same apostle who had defended the cause of Christian liberty successfully before the Jerusalem apostles? He spent all that time defending liberty successfully, but now if eating meat offends somebody, he won't eat it? Do you understand the heart of Paul here? It keeps going back to the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ always puts others first. So whenever you're in the presence, whenever you're in their presence, you are careful not to offend them by your liberty. So once again, the thing is what Satan uses to drive wedges. It's not the thing. It's the heart that deals with it. And the heart that is full of the Spirit of God will always give way to others' liberty and strength. And then, of course... This brings us to our point, always choose the best things. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So according to this verse, the Christian is to decide between doubtful things by always choosing the best things. Now, here's the key, because the meat of this verse, and may I say, is often missed by many Bible teachers. The virtues mentioned here are pagan virtues. The words do not occur in the great list of Christian virtues, the list that includes love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. So on the whole, they are taken from the Greek ethics and from the writings of the Greek philosophers. So in using them, Paul is actually sanctifying, as it were, the general accepted things of morality of the pagans that are permissible for Christians, as he goes on to talk here. He's saying that although the pursuit of the best things by Christians will always include fellowship with God, the will of God, and all means to advance the claims of the gospel and other spiritual things, it will not mean the exclusion of the best things that God has allowed in our societies. The Greeks had a robust culture. Paul is saying that these things in and of themselves may not be wrong for the Christian in moderation. Consequently, Christians can love all that is true, noble, pure, lovely, and admirable, whatever it is. Christians can rejoice in the best of art, good literature, wonderful music, no matter who creates it. And so what he's doing is helping us to live in a society where separation had become a problem. Living in a society that you can enjoy and envelop people and draw people in and share the love of Christ and be part of their lives and let Christ reign through us, enjoying the things that God has allowed to be created, even in our fallen state. And it's a world of things that God has given and blessed us with. So as you see the principles of determining God's will in doubtful things, you can also take confidence from the promise that God's presence accompanies these things if your heart is full of the Spirit. And, you know, every topic we go through, 
no matter what it is every week, it always comes back to the mind of God. It always comes back to seeking what is best for you and I as Christians. It always comes back to putting him first in all areas. And when we do that, all these questionable things take care of themselves. Because your decisions are not coming from opinion, they're coming from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and He blends it into your heart, and He teaches you in all truth so that you can make proper choices and proper decisions. At the same time, we must be sensitive to those around us who may view things differently. If, they don't, if they're not violating doctrine, if they're not violating the hardcore things of the church, then we need to be loving and compassionate and build into their lives as they build into ours. The God, he goes on to say, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then verse 9 says, And the God of peace will be with you. Not the peace of God, the God of peace. In other words, when your heart is right and the Lord reigns, he's with you every step of the way. And that allows you and I to have his mind making decisions in doubtful areas. That means that the indwelling Holy Spirit will guide you in the right choices and the right actions. You will always have others in mind when you make choices. It may be right for you, but if it's a struggle with someone else, you, you stay away from it, as Paul said even if it's meat, whatever it might be. Because in everything you say and do, Christ is to be glorified. And when he is at the center and the focus, these disputable things, these gray areas, they fall right into place. And the controversies are settled quite easily. He must increase. We must decrease. As John 3.30 says, and as that happens in your life and mine, all these lists and all these things that we try to adhere to will be pushed aside for a glorifying Christ in every situation. He is the one who guides, and he is the one that will make things clear. And as you radiate that in your heart, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Almighty God will be glorified through you, and your effect in the world around you will be powerful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these passages, and we thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. We know that there are many things in the Scriptures that don't mention the things that we deal with today, but in essence, they really do, because all things are made clear by your Spirit. You promised, Lord, for, to give us the indwelling Spirit that he would guide us into all truth. So help us to get our focus off lists of things and put our focus squarely on Jesus Christ and allow his spirit to lead us and guide us every step of the way. We'll thank you for what you'll do in our hearts, Lord, and we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.